Hello. Welcome back to You Saved My Life, a queer theory podcast um, where we're going to learn a little bit about um, our pasts, our futures. We're going to time travel. We're going to talk about queer theory. Uh, it's going to be really fun. So stick around. I'm your host, Phoenix Danger, and I probably um, probably cry at least once when I'm reading the material for like every episode of this. So I just wanted to let you know that I'm feeling emotional. So um, I've been okay. So right, we're always we're always thinking about survival um, on this podcast, and I think something something that I've been thinking about lately also is um, our elders and our ancestors. Um, I feel like, or at least this is true for me, um, I don't really have an intergenerational experience with queerness. Um, People that I've always been around who are queer were pretty much always my peers or um, folks who were, you know, like three or four, something like that, years older than me. Um, And so I've sort of like gleaned a lot of my knowledge um, about queer pasts through, um, through theory, which is kind of, kind of what I mean when I say that we're time traveling. It means that, um, you know, we are in the present, um, I think. We are in the present and we're reading or I, I don't know, I'm reading, maybe you're following up and reading too, that would be cool. Um, but I'm reading things, uh, sorry, I'm reading literature that is often from a really different time, um, the 90s, the 80s, when when queerness was starting to become uh, very, very urgent um, and slightly more visible. And I think that, you know, I think that that's really cool because queer queer language um has evolved so much and yet not at all and i think there's um i think that there's this a little bit of a debate over whether or not language itself is sufficient to to describe ourselves and i think that it's important going back to a time in like the 90s where some queer language was just evolving. And you can kind of see that there are divisions over a lot of different language. Um, There's like new developing language. There are things that we don't hear anymore. There are things that we still hear. And there, I don't know, like I think that it's really cool to look at the look at the words that have been used to describe a um, sort of like a wealth of genders. I don't know. I think we're not supposed to say wealth when you're talking about queer stuff, but um, but a wealth of genders of uh, an array of genders um, more more than we could ever name. So actually, I'm on I'm on the side that thinks that language is not sufficient, but it's fun. All right. So today we're talking about Leslie Feinberg who was a like sort of like fiercely radical trans person who um multiple times or or twice rather chose to receive uh hormonal and surgical alterations to her body uh in order to sort of like transgress 
gender and sort of like to express the freedom of self-determination and being able to um being able to change your gender or being able to name your gender or just like having the right to use different words and different expressions to be yourself. I'm using she, she pronouns for Leslie Feinberg, um, because from what, from what I've read, her exact words are that there are no pronouns in the English language that, um, that sort of that that rightfully or accurately express her gender identity. Um, you, if if you know who Leslie Feinberg is, you um, you probably know her for uh, for the 1993 novel Stone Butch Blues, which is like absolutely heart wrenching um, and such a window into violence around gender um, in a given moment of time. Uh, and in a moment of time where transness didn't necessarily exist, um, but passing did. Um, and so like kind of the idea with that is that, um, the idea with that is that many, uh, sorry, many people who were assigned female at birth identified as women, um, but dressed like quote unquote as men sort of like in, uh, in garb that was traditionally regarded as yeah regarded as men's clothing and sometimes like or sometimes slash often passed as a uh, passes men in public um because of the sort of relative safety that that may have afforded to be sort of like more of a legible body in public though of course um there was always a threat um a threat within patriarchy and the police state that um, that they could be, or anyone who's like transgressing gender um, could, you know, like could be taken in and arrested. Um, so this was a really dangerous thing to do at the time. Um, and, you know, like to be clear, it's a really dangerous thing to do now, especially, um, especially for trans feminine people. So in some ways you can see that we've come a long way. And then in some ways you can see that we haven't gone a ways at all. I think, so what I'm, what I'm reading today or what I, what I read for this episode um, was Leslie Feinberg's 1996 book called Transgender Warriors. Um, and in, in this book, she kind of goes through um, sort of like a historical material analysis of what not only the emergence of transgender identities, but also the history of patriarchal forces that that shape resistance to that. Um, Leslie Feinberg was a communist. I think it's important to say first because um, there's like also a lot of sort of like class-based material analysis in her work. Just to sort of like let you know how much of a, a hardcore communist she is, um, Leslie Feinberg died in 2014 and her last words were hasten the revolution remember me as a revolutionary communist and so that's how we'll remember her and then also I think that I should probably go through um what what communism is we're going to go over what communism is really quickly 
um, so that we can kind of like have a context of where we're going with this. Um, and so I think you know, the best way to start with this is through um, a Marxist analysis. Uh, that is Karl Marx. Maybe you've heard of him. Um, and his analysis kind of depended on, well, of course, language, right? And so the idea is that there are two main classes in society, um, the bourgeoisie, very hard to spell, uh, and they were the owners of what Marx called the means of production, which is actually like a very literal term. It's like, what material things do we use to, um, to produce goods and to produce wealth? And so the bourgeoisie are the people who own capital, who own um, like manufacturing plants, factories, people who own land, especially. Land is a big source of power. And the proletariat was basically fucking everyone else. The proletariat um, are are people who trade uh, their labor for a wage. And so they are working, um, being paid hourly, often, you know, like not particularly enough to survive. And the surplus profit of their work goes to the bourgeoisie, um, which is obviously a huge, um, a huge class divide. And so Karl Marx, Karl Marx and his communist friend, uh, Frederick Engels, proposed that in order to overthrow class hierarchy, it was necessary for the pro proletariat to rise up and overthrow the bourgeoisie. And so in communism, which is a political and an economic structure, the means of production are owned by, like owned collectively by the people. And so it's a classless society for a lot of forms of communism. It's a stateless society. Um, labor Labor and uh, labor and surplus are distributed between um, distributed among the workers who are everyone, and work is like work and labor are not coercive. Um, people are doing work and labor for the benefit of their community, and everyone is compensated not through capital, um, but through sort of the goods and resources. Um, that that match their needs, uh, which is you know, which is like a good acknowledgement of different types of people needing different things. So okay, that's communism. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit more about language right now. So Leslie Feinberg describes or defines transness or trans trans <laughs> transgenderness. Um, at this point, uh, in like 1996, people aren't aren't yet saying like trans, um, they're saying transgender. So Feinberg's belief is that identity and the words that we use to describe it, and not just identity, but also also community, can only be formed in what she calls the, the heat of the struggle, and that they must be forged collectively, while at the same time, everyone has the, the right and the autonomy to describe themselves however however they want. And here she describes or she defines transgender as pretty much anyone who um, sort of like crosses the gender binary, um, whether whether um, whether their identities are binary or not. Um, and actually she she has a list 
she has a list over here of a couple of words that people at the time were using to describe themselves. Um, and she and she takes this from a poll where people describe themselves as transsexuals, transgenders, transvestites, transgenderists, bigenders, drag queens, drag kings, crossdressers, masculine women, feminine men, intersexuals, uh, parentheses, people referred to in the past as hermaphrodites, and so we can already see language evolving here. That was just my side note. Androgens, cross-genders, shapeshifters, passing women, passing men, gender benders, gender blenders, bearded women, and women bodybuilders who have crossed the line of what is considered to be socially acceptable for the female body. And that's a lot. Like, I remember, or I don't know, I'm like actually glad to see that the multiplicity of gender definition uh, has dated back to that time because I know... I know a lot of people, including myself, who don't necessarily have the words to describe ourselves, who feel that the ideas of masculine and feminine um, are a result of and a reproduction of a of a gender binary, which was you know, which is also can be like. Uh, like men and women, male and female, and like the point is that the former um, is is described as masculine, and the latter is is described as feminine, and basically they're just defined in opposition to each other. I remember hearing about a survey, which I I forget the name of it. If I find it, I'll tell you next time. But there was a survey of trans people, um, in which in which the results returned, I believe, over 700 different self-determined gender identities, which is pretty, it's pretty cool. And I think it's cool because I think it acknowledges that everyone has a gender, like cis people have genders, binary people, um, like people with binary gender identities, like have genders, uh, non-binary people, well, I don't know. No, let's not talk about non-binary people yet. Um, you know, and everyone experiences their own gender in a different way. I think maybe this is a good time to start talking about what what I thought was the most interesting part of um, of Feinberg's analysis, in which she goes like she goes all the way like pretty far back in time to to trace and name where and when patriarchy originated and why patriarchy is dependent on enforcing strict gender binaries. And by that, I also, I, I, I mean, in particular, uh, cisgender binaries. But, so before I read this, I was just like, I had no idea where patriarchy came from. I just had assumed that, not that it was always there, but that its origins were untraceable because of the the um, ubiquitousness, ubiquity of patriarchy in like sort of like the modern colonized world, you know. Mm. But yeah, like Feinberg tells a really compelling story about this, and or like a really compelling narrative about this, um, and then. And then um, sort of like abruptly 
turns to um, like a communist analysis at the very end, which I, I actually, I really appreciated. And so she's talking about a time where humans uh, sort of like start to develop agriculture um, and ceased to be nomadic. And at, at this time, because agricultural societies were developing, whereas before nomadic societies would sort of like hunt and gather and not really accumulate extra, um, would sort of like use um, every, every part of the buffalo, if you will. Mm, yeah, there wasn't, there, it was like, it was a, it was a communal society, right? Um, it was where everyone had their needs met to the best of the abilities of um, the hunting and the gathering. Um, and it was, yeah, it was sort of like a way of life where there like wasn't necessarily a hierarchy. Um, you know, there were men who hunted and like women who gathered and also um, a multiplicity of genders in between, um, some of which language still um, still survives and like comes from native, like native indigenous cultures. And, you know, those were things that existed prior to patriarchy, like hunting or gathering is like not important, like, or sorry, hunting is not more important than gathering and vice versa. And so, and so what happens when humans start to settle into societies, um, sort of like permanent societies and residences, what they do is, so what happens is because they're not always moving, because they can store things, um, because a surplus of resources begins to appear. And so when I say that, I mean, like, we're farming, we, we farmed some squash, some squash, um, and instead of having just enough and using every single part to every single part of the squash um using sort of like all of it and like fully depleting the resource uh through like distribution to everyone who needs to eat what's happening is that now there's um there's extra and the extra food becomes accumulated um and sort of taken over as property by by men and the reason for this is that even though like in previous societies there weren't um, there weren't sort of like value differences between mm, hunting and gathering. What Feinberg says is that hunting and like like sort of like bringing home not, not the bacon, there wasn't bacon yet. Um, but bringing home animals that were used for meat, that were used for clothing, that were used for uh, that were used for housing. Um, that's what Feinberg defines as the the original the original idea of sort of like material wealth and so naturally when mm, yeah so naturally when we when we reach a society that's just staying in one place um the men are used to collecting this surplus so yeah, men, men are collecting the surplus of food. They're controlling how it's distributed. Um, and as, as time kind of passes some more, we humans are developing more, uh, more sophisticated tools, more sophisticated ways of farming, more sophisticated ways of 
mm, domesticating animals. Um, and so this creates an even bigger surplus, an even bigger accumulation of wealth. And um, and men start to pass these inheritances of wealth down to their sons. And, and what happens here is that there is a need to define and enforce gender roles because if we do not have these very stiff gender roles, then who are we going to pass the wealth on to, you know? And so in order to create a hierarchy and to preserve wealth, um, men have to name an other who falls beneath them. And so, as we know, that other was women. And, um, and at the time... All right. So because because there's a, a sort of like a binary hierarchy of men and women, bodies that are like bodies or expressions that are deemed illegible become disruptive, disruptive to the accumulation of wealth because no one no one can define them. Do, are they are they men? Are they women? Or do they get to keep the capital? Do they not? Um Surprise, they do not. And laws were actually, laws were passed. Um, it was actually written into the book of Deuteronomy. So in the book of Deuteronomy, um, which is a religious text uh, that is in the Torah slash in the Christian Old Testament, um, these, these men have written basically into divine law that people who are gender variant are not allowed to exist because it's confusing and it makes people angry and people don't know where the wealth should go. And so, um, and so what they say in this is that among other things, um, women shall not wear or, okay, this is my deuter. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> women shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. Neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. He that is wounded in the stones or hath his privy member cut off shall not enter the congregation of the Lord. Yeah, the Old Testament is like mad dogmatic. Um, this is like coming from an, an, an angry God uh, who is, I guess, angry at trans people, right? What I think is the most interesting part about this, and this is what Feinberg, and this is what Feinberg points out, is that this is like a really good example of reactionary uh, reactionary law because why would there need to be written word banning the idea of gender transgression if it were not already a relatively common practice? And I think this is kind of like, it kind of reminds me of what we were talking about with Lisa Dugan in the last episode where sort of like the right and the left will, or actually no, this reminds me of when, when gay marriage emerged as a prominent right to pursue um, only, only after the right says that you cannot get married. And so 
you know, it's sort of like ideas reacting to each other um, in a way that ultimately is repressive and oppressive and violent. And I think that we, we see this a lot today still, um, where bodies that are considered illegible spark or sort of like illegible in terms of gender um, spark this like anxiety and this anger and this urgency to be classified. And I think, you know, more often than not, that anger translates into sort of like this unfettered, unpersecuted violence against trans people, um, against gender nonconforming people. And I really, I, I, I really appreciate Leslie Feinberg because um, her voice was one of one of the first butch or transmasculine voices that really, really put in, into my head the possibility of expressing masculinity within my assigned female body and not totally hating it. Um, I remember when I was, when I was younger, I came out when I was like 16 and I just hated, I think I've talked about this already. I like, I hated, um, the idea of masculinity. Um, my friend wrote in my yearbook, like, please don't come back butch. Um, I felt, I felt embarrassed and ashamed and again, angry. I felt really fucking angry at, um, at butches, like at masculine women, because I knew that or I think somewhere I knew that that was that that was inside me and I knew that not necessarily like within queer communities but like in the larger like straight cisgender world that that was considered ugly and I think something that is really um really sort of like interesting about that is that when I was coming out in the like mid 2010s or sorry, when I was, when sort of like I was forming ideas of gender in the 90s, um, part of the reason that butch women held the aesthetic that they did um, of sort of like, I know you're thinking about it already, flannel, um, flannel, short hair, um, ring of keys, if anyone, if anyone has familiarity with, with Fun Home. And that they had bodies that took up space. And this was this was actually, for a lot of people, um, an, an anti-capitalist statement where they were not going to be women who engaged in fashion through capitalism. They were not going to necessarily care about how fashionable or how attractive uh, they were to cis people. Um, and so I think that there's something in there about how how people like hated these butch bodies because because of the ideas that that capitalism, um, but they they hated butch bodies because they loved capitalism. 
I don't know. I mean, like, I worry, I worry about these things being lost because, because masculinity in queer circles nowadays, I think is really marked by, um, sort of like a monopoly of desire that's centered around, um, that's centered around aesthetic and sort of, uh, sort of like creating a hierarchy of importance and desirability and how much we allow people to take up space based on like if they look cool or not or how much social capital people have and I think that I think that expression of gender and yeah like you know you're free to express your gender however you want but if you're not fashionable and you're not like really noticeable then your gender is not valid or it's not affirmed. And I think that this clashes a lot with the idea of self-determination because the the point of it is that it's supposed to be liberating in some way. Um, but I guess like my like my biggest fear is that we are Re, like we as queer people and as trans people are sort of like recreating um, a hierarchy of value that exists um, very much like in a larger sense in 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 the world um, in in the world of cis people in the world of straight people um, and that we assign value based on desirability. There's a lot of ways to to modify the body to better express one's gender and I think that what people think of immediately um when they when they hear this is hormones and surgery which are not which like although which it is it's fucking wonderful and like yeah that people like can have access in a way to this, even though it seems like everyone uh, has a GoFundMe for their surgery, um, which actually I feel <laughs> like, even though it's tragic, like I feel like funding, um, like funding these these surgeries for trans people is is a is a form of mutual aid. I think, yeah, I just think it's an amazing way, and an, or an amazing model of like what what alternative economies can look like when we are redistributing money um, to people of mar- like of the most marginalized identities. I think that there's an incredible multiplicity of ways to, to sort of like have your body reflect who you feel yourself to be. And I think that that you know, like, I think that that extends to, like, body modifications, like, tattoos and piercings, um, because we did not choose the bodies that we're in, um, and I think that body modification is a really cool way to sort of, like, take back some, like, to take back that autonomy and to be like I want my body to look this way like I want my body to be covered this way like I want these images on my body to remind myself of what survival can look like and what possibility can look like and I think that that is oh right (laughs) oh sorry I think this is important another way another way that I think is um 
is cool about presenting different gender identities is also like pitching one's voice in a certain way and so um what you what you get on on this podcast most of the time is me talking in my lo- in my low register um like there's also like a much higher register like if you're at the bar and you're talking to the bartender and you're like excuse me can I charge my phone please or when I'm like working at like my social no, what when I'm working at my customer service job and I'm like hey can I help you out with anything today um and it's it just feels like it feels like almost not voluntary and I feel I feel thankful for the times when I have the space to shape how I am perceived. Um, so with that, um, I have a poem for you, as always. Um, fun fact, I did not like or understand poetry before I started this podcast, so it's like pretty, pretty exciting. So this comes from Kai Cheng Tom who is a trans woman of color who I actually had the amazing opportunity to um to edit some of her work a couple of years back which which was basically like a a non a non job because I think that her work is really fucking powerful and um the range of expression that she can access um is like really is really fucking phenomenal okay this poem is called hrt swallowing elixirs beneath the moon i'm a slow burning alchemy in midnight's tube shape shifter skin changer doctor's daughter i am the demon mother with barren womb sweet nectar puddling in my pores sometimes to survive we must become more than alive more than woman and more than man The doctors want to know if I take hormones because I hate my body. No, it's because I love myself. The other night, I dreamed that there were two flowers budding inside my chest. Like Sirius, my body blossoms, swells beneath cool blue fingers. Thanks for listening. You Saved My Life was recorded and produced in the Mask FM studio. If you'd like to support our network, visit www.patreon.com slash maskfm.